Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Choose Inclusion for our Black Voices Matter series. Uh, we are here with Dr. Bernita Glenn White, um, and we're really excited to have her today, her here today for the- Welcome back, everyone, to another Whoa. episode of Choose Inclusion for our Black Voices Matters. All right, I clearly have uh, some work to do. Can you guys still hear me? You're good. Yes. <laughs> So uh, I knew there was going to be a technical difficulty here. So Yubi is not with us here today. He usually runs the, the tech behind it, but I am here with Mike as usual. Nina, how are you? We're going to crush it. Don't worry about it. All right. <laughs> so we have me, an amazing guest, so we're good. Yes, we're super excited about this. So Vernita is, a, is currently a professor of mathematics education at Stetson University. Um, her mission is to heal the nation through education. Um, she was a K through 12 teacher, used to teach math in high school, um, and is really uh, working on uh, bridging the achievement gap in the K through 12 system. And so we're really excited to have you here. Welcome, Bernita, to the podcast. Thank you so much. I am excited to be here with you all, and I can't wait to start our conversation. So yeah, the first question we always ask our, our guests is really just, how are you doing? There's so much going on in the world right now. How are you feeling? You know, I'm actually feeling great. Um, and, and I attribute that to just a lot of centering um, myself, a lot of personal development work that I do with myself so I don't get, you know, too bogged down with what's going on on the outside world, things that I can't control. So I'm doing pretty good. So can you tell us about what uh, you're currently doing um, in terms of like, you're a professor of mathematics education, but can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got to where you are today? Yes, so there are two sides of me. I do have my, I am a professor at the university and then I also have my own business that I'm starting up and running. So being a professor, um, very quickly, I never really wanted to be a professor. A lot of people go get their PhDs in the hopes of becoming a professor, but I wanted to get my PhD because I wanted to go back to the K-12 system to tell people what to do because they kept telling me what to do. And I noticed that all of them had doctorate degrees. And I was like, well, maybe that's what I need for people to listen to me. But no one had a doctorate degree in a content area like mathematics. So that's where I was like, okay, I guess I'll go um, and do that. And I was like, what's the shortest um, path possible to get this PhD? Now, I do not recommend people doing it that way, like you should do your research and study, but it took me three years to get my doctorate because I had to go to school full time. So I had to leave K-12, went to school full time, and then it was like, okay, I'm ready to change the world. I don't want to be a professor, but then life happens. And then I had to go back to the school system, and that's where I really found like a passion. So it was it was a blessing in disguise because I saw a lot of the inequities that were happening with our school systems that were in our most affluent areas compared to our schools that were in uh, what was categorized as low socioeconomic areas. So I wanted to move up in that area. And again, life happens. It didn't work out that way. And then I got the job at Stetson University to be um, a professor. And everything was going well. Um, I was teaching a couple of courses like foundations of education, um, a few general education classes, some mathematics methods courses, and trying to navigate through the tenure and promotion process. 
which is a very challenging process if anyone knows about that. And then I realized, it was, I think I was about three semesters in when I had a group of students say some things that just totally, you know, rocked my world. Um, and I, that, that'll lead to our conversation that, we'll, that we're gonna have later on. What happened in that classroom also led me to um, my business where I, I am focusing on really bridging the achievement gap, well actually eliminating the achievement gap through diversity, equity and inclusion, where I do workshops. Um, I do it from a different angle. I use a little bit of culturally responsive, culturally responsiveness, but I, instead of attacking people, I say, look, everything, all change that we want to happen starts with us. So I do a lot of work with personal development that stems off into diversity, equity, um, inclusion. So that is <laughs> about me in this, in a nutshell. <laughs> well, doctor, I'm, I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you and I love the technique that you're using. Um, so I, th th there are a lot of, uh, I don't know, almost shaming techniques and, and, uh, courses that are out there to, um, engage with and I'm I'm a big believer on changing the pronouns from you know them well and specifically around people with disabilities them blind people or those deaf people to an us conversation how do, how do we get you can get people uh, more willing to change when you start changing the pronouns to an us conversation so I love that can you give some examples of how you engage your audiences and and start to flip the uh, the script on that Okay, I, it started when I had to do the work with, the, with uh, a class that I had. And that's why I said my world changed when I had this one particular course of students who, and I tried to create a safe environment. So students are free to say whatever they are feeling. I just let them know that a response <laughs> is going to happen. So in this particular case, there were, um, I realized that students will always say that they were colorblind. And I was like, where do you get this from? You cannot be colorblind. You know, they're like, well, everyone is the same. And I say, no, that's not true. And then they would say things like these students over there or those types of people. And these words were coming out of their mouths. So instead of attacking them, I went through a series of, let's just talk about you yourself. Let's identify some of your invisible traits, some of your visible traits and see how it feels if someone only talks about you based on certain traits. And we went through um, a process of really connecting with themselves. And they, and then they, they learned, and it was a little uncomfortable because I had to be uncomfortable and I would call them by a trait maybe they didn't like. And I told them it was a safe environment. I didn't mean any harm, but I wanted them to see how that felt. And once I got them to understand that if you, calling people only by certain labels you know, whatever category that you're using can be hurtful. And once they felt that way, that opened the door for me to really dig deep into um, talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, I mean, you kind of hit on this, this concept of safety. And I think um, this is one of those conversations that, you know, our future educators aren't really talking about is like, what are we doing to make students safe in the classroom, but more specifically, like, you know, the language that teachers are using to talk to people of color, people of disabilities, people of different groups of marginalized communities, you know, how, what is that conversation like for 
when you're a, you're probably the only well you're the only educator I know that's actually talking about educating making sure that teachers are creating safe spaces in the classroom can you can you dive into that a little bit and let us know more, more about that yes so creating a safe space um in general educators know how to create like the general safe space like you're welcomed here there is no harm we're going to make sure that the classroom is accessible um, depending on who's in our classrooms because we do get lists and everything and accommodations and all of that that is true but when it comes to language um, safety and what can be said and shared you actually have to go through some norms and create the norms there are two ways to do that either you get norms that are already created like i've used a few from valencia college there are like 13 of them that we go through or you, as a group you can come through um, and, and create your own norms about what I, so in general, it's like what we say in here is from a place of curiosity, not from a place of harm. Be able to speak your truth. Do not leave here with unanswered questions. Um, you will not, um, no repercussion will come to you if you are asking certain questions or saying certain things because you want to, want to, um, go to the next level or you want to learn at a, at a deeper, deeper knowledge. So, and it's, and it's, and I'll be honest, when I do my workshops like this with educators, it takes me about an hour to go through this because I really want to make sure like we can't have certain conversations if you don't feel safe enough to open your mouth and say what you're really feeling. With my future teachers, I do have a little bit more time. So it will take me about three weeks to go through that process with them of what it means to really be safe. And it's a trust thing. You know, I have to let down my guard as the facilitator, uh, whether in a workshop or as a professor in the classroom and be vulnerable. And so once they see what it means to be vulnerable and I share some information with them, then it's like, okay, she's right here with us and we trust her um, that we are able to have these conversations and she's not gonna judge us. So that is a way like creating norms would be and not just creating them, but actually using them. So, for example, if a student says something and they know that it's not out of curiosity, then I give the students power to call that person out. So it's not coming from me when I'm in my workshops with the teachers or administrators. I do the same thing and say we all have a collective responsibility to make sure that all of us are still feeling safe and uh, within these conversations. Was, was that clear? Yeah, like how does okay. it, how does this play out in the classroom when like teachers aren't, well, we know that teachers aren't really doing this, right? So like, <laughs> right. how does this play out in the classroom when they aren't doing this to black students or for the black community? Well, when they are not doing that, a lot of students shut down. There's no learning that occurs and that's where you get a lot of behavior problems. And that goes into what it really means to be culturally responsive. Sometimes uh, people look at cultural responsiveness like a, another strategy in the toolkit, but it's really understanding the background and experiences of the student. So if you're not creating a, a safe space for a student to express themselves or understanding their background and you're only coming at them like one way, like you sit down or you're not doing this right or what's wrong with you or you're excluding them for, from high level academics and things like that then that causes the student to act out. And then again, acting out like that leads to you not doing your work and not doing your work leads to not performing well on standardized assessments. And then all of that leads to why we have this huge um, gap in the, the achievement um, learning. 
So when the, so people don't make that correlation often. If a student doesn't feel safe mentally, uh, physically, emotionally, they're not going to learn. And as the teacher in the classroom or the administrator or the educator, it is our job to, to take that next step of what it means to create that safe environment for students. I am, I, I, this, this feels like it needs to be a TED talk. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, I really, and, and I say that not, you know, not, not in a, um, a way that eliminates your business, but in a way that, like, I just don't feel like this is pervasively known, pervasively done, pervasively thought of, like, I just, I, um, is it just me? Like, I feel like there needs to be like this, you know, 18 minute, like, hey, uh, uh, hey, educators, wake up kind of TED talk. So I, I see it as two ways. Um, is this a new conversation? Not really, but you have to do it in action. There's a lot of research on everything that I just said, especially around um, culturally responsive, culturally responsive inclusion, pedagogy, environment and teaching. What happens sometimes is we don't take that information what I call like beyond the ivory tower. So in higher education or in the college fields where all these research papers and books come from, from the most part, we, we do that and we share them to our own audience, but we don't give them to the practitioner. And me being you who used to be a practitioner in the K-12 school, I never heard about any of this. Like even when I was in my teacher prep program, it was just very like surface level. So that's it. So there, there is research, but it doesn't get into the right hands. The other part is, it's, it's a tough conversation to have. And it's a lot of work to want to be bold enough to say, to call people out. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. And then in order to do work like this to, and have conversations, you have to do some inner work. So I had to do a lot of work on myself to make sure that I wasn't triggered by some of these things that my students would say, because again, I had to make sure that I, I wanted to hear their truth so I can help them. So maybe the conversation is there, but you're right. Maybe I do need to do um, a TED talk to really bridge the two areas together. Well, oh, and absolutely do a TED talk on this. <laughs> yes, you need to do a TED talk because so I, I assume, doctor, that this wasn't just this like, okay, I was having a glass of wine on a Friday night and I came up with this theory. Like this was a like there's a there's a lot of data and what what to me like leveraging a platform like TED um is you know again there's so many workshops that you can do uh, and yet there's so many workshops that need to be done. And to me, leveraging, opening up that door of conversation. And I totally agree. Like the whole, this, you know, you have so many Caucasians that are coming out, white people that are coming out right now and saying, oh, Black Lives Matter, I need you to educate me. And like, no, 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 you need to do some of the legwork yourself. And you're, <laughs> and just like what you're saying, we, we all need to do some of that inner work. But I feel like this kind of conversation is, is uh, on, on a TED stage is worth having from a, uh, you got to get this out there in a very pervasive way. This, so before people can even, as educators, like we think of like this institutionalized racism that goes on. Well, again, <laughs> there's this thing that happens before we are adults with all of our perceptions. And yeah. this is our educational experience. Like this, this is the kind of stuff where you can start to uh, turn the tides on that institutional racism. I agree. I, I agree. I did do, I did put out for a TED talk, but it got pushed back for, because of the coronavirus until 2021. 
Um, so maybe they'll pick it back up, but I'll definitely try somewhere else to, to get the, the message out because it is um, a conversation that needs to be had. But when I, I know that some people are, what, I, what am I trying to say? They don't want to talk about it because of, um, I think you mentioned it before, Mike, about the shaming or people feeling judged when we have these conversations, especially with um, white educators. And it's like, well, I need you to be a little uncomfortable first because nothing's going to change. Uh, but I don't approach it that way of bashing or shaming. Yeah, I think, I mean, sometimes though, like we have to have these uncomfortable conversations for the conversation to, to move forward, right? To, to evolve and to actually come out with actionable items that will make a difference. So, oh, absolutely. you know, I'm, I'm all about making people uncomfortable, right, Mike? <laughs> I, I'm right here, Nina. I am right here. You don't have to remind me of all the conversations. <laughs> no. But Rita, so I mean, this is like let's let's talk about race in the classroom, though. I mean, when we think about the typical classroom teacher, most of the time it's a middle class white woman, and most students, you know, Mike had his aha moment earlier before we started today that most people have never had a black teacher throughout K through 12 and even beyond that. I mean, what is what has been the impact of that reality? So I did some research, like the more I saw this, um, the more I had to think like, where is this coming from? Or how did this happen? So Dr. Beverly Tatum, she wrote a few books. <laughs> um, one, why are all the black children sitting together in the cafeteria? And the second one, can we talk about race? And in there, she lays out the history of what has happened with our um, teaching, prof teaching profession, and it started with um, desegregating the schools all the way back. So very quickly, I'm not going to take you on a full history lesson, but when the schools uh, were integrated, although they were taking a lot of the Black students and putting them into the white schools, they forgot about the, the Black teachers and administrators. So a lot of them lost their jobs because they were, the schools, the white schools are willing to bring, well, they had to bring over the black students, but there was nothing to to protect the black um, teachers and administrators. So that um, so when that happened, a lot of students lost their role models and lost their positive um, yet yeah, their positive role models. So as years kept going on, less and less students of color would see um, black teachers or professionals in these in these um, roles. And then as higher education started opening up because you haven't seen a black teacher in your K-12 experience, then you don't have anything to aspire to. So that's where a, a decline into um, black people going into the, the education profession, it was a huge decline that happened because if you're not seeing yourself in a certain role, then why would you go major in that particular area? There was an increase in business administration uh, from black Americans because that's what um, they saw as students. So when you have that on top of not going into college to get your teaching degree, then that kills the cycle of, or the pipeline of, of, of us having more um, teachers of color. So it all, it started all the way back when we thought we wanted our schools to be integrated, but we didn't do a good job of making sure that there was a continuing pipeline of educators of color. Oh my goodness. I, <laughs> I, the, I, oh my goodness. That's all I can say with this. Like, uh, uh, to, to go back throughout history and thread that um, 
to, to kind of thread that from like, here's, here's what we did with, um, desegregation and, and, you know, integrating schools. I mean, the, to, to realize that, um, and I have a hard time, hard time believing doctor that, uh, that wasn't thought of, like, I, I, I call, call me, you know, call me cynical on there, but I, I feel like that was almost like an intentional, you know, when, when you've seen so many of the times where legislation was used in a, um, in a way like this, I almost feel like this was one of those, like, I, I'm still, I'm still a glasses half full. I've been blind my whole life. So I have to be, but <laughs> it's a, I just, I have a hard time believing that there wasn't some kind of intentional, you know, uh, meaning behind that. So, um, but that is, I, I thank you for the history lesson lesson, but so let's take that and say, okay. Um, I, I feel like you are a, you're, you're a doctor of mathematics for Pete's sake. So give, give me your crystal ball then. So yes, I feel like a Ted talk, you know, people need to understand that these conversations will help with institutionalized, uh, racism policy and, in practice moving forward. But give me your, give me your crystal ball. I'm like, uh, like, how do we turn this around in a generation? Well, first we have to realize, and, and I'm with you, Mike, I, I think it, I mean, it's, 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 it was intentional. This is why it's called institutional racism. The system, people say the system is broken. The system is not broken. It was built to do exactly uh, what it's doing. You, we have to change our, first acknowledge that, and that's the first step. People don't want to acknowledge that this is how it was set up. But, the, and I'm a backup for a minute. Another reason, go, and going back to what Nina said, how does this impact what's happening in our classrooms? Well, from that, you had a, a, the profession um, back in when they did the, the study, maybe about 2017-ish, 3 million educators, about 65 to 70% are white female educators um, in, the, in the middle class area, S especially in our elementary schools where we know that is the, that is the foundation of where um, students get pretty much everything they need to move forward. But because of this history and especially the deep, deep history um, between black and white Americans, there's a, it, it's really deep into our DNA. So in the classrooms, um, and I've seen this a lot where you have a lot of white female teachers, especially our, our black male students of color or our black male students or any male students of color, there's a, there's a, a tension there, a, a unspoken tension that happens and the dynamics is all the way off just from history. And people don't want to think about that but it's generational. And again, I'm not gonna go too deep into that, but the, 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 the twisted relationship between white females and, and black males of uh, what has happened in history. And that does come out into the classroom. You know, there is a very deep subconscious level of things that are happening, which impacts how they are impacting, how they are educating um, those students. Do I think things can change? Absolutely. And it starts with, again, coming all the way back to pre-service education. If our field in pre-service, um, when I say pre-service, of course, the future teachers, we have to dismantle how we are um, training our teachers. We do need to recruit other teachers of color. Um, it also needs to be a more inclusive environment. We need teachers who happen to have disabilities. We need every um, person represented in our education profession because we don't, in the education profession, we don't mirror society. 
And that's also what is hindering us. We have to mirror society because our students need to see representation across the board. And then we also need to take, um, take some lessons from like counseling and psychology and really work on the person. You have to be a whole person before you can start influencing and impacting other people. And we, we don't do that at all. And I had to have this light bulb experience. Like I was all content, like you need to know your math or you need to know your science. And none of that is relevant until we get you to a point where you truly believe that all students can learn. And the people who truly believe that all students can learn, those are the ones who are making the difference in our classrooms. Unfortunately, they're in the minority and we have to make them become the majority. So do I think it can happen? Absolutely, but we have to be willing to let go of some of our traditions. Well, a lot of our traditions in the education profession to really start teaching like for real teaching about just being nice and kind <laughs> and more um, culturally responsive. I couldn't agree more. And this sounds very much like a, like, you know, what's the, the discussions that are finally happening with our police system, right? Like the whole, uh, you know, again, we, we, we have to recognizing the history of the police force and uh, what it's done. It sounds very similar to that, that path that's going on. Does it not? Yes, absolutely. Um, I did a, a, a training, but I call it, we, um, I said, stay woke because we teach lead. And then I added serve who we are at our core because it comes out you can only show up as your representational person for so long and then you get triggered and that trigger um produces trauma and whether your trauma is going to be internally or externally that is what's happening both in our police um, force and in our classrooms Renita, i know that you you kind of mentioned it but i think it's really important for our listeners to hear more context around it because there is a dynamic between white women and black boys and black men in the society. And I feel like when we talk about racism and institutional racism in our country, we don't talk about that specific dynamic. And so I was hope, could you give us a little bit more context and history behind that and what that what that is and what that means today? <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> it's important. It's really important. I, I really don't think it's getting real that. now. Yeah. <laughs> let's 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 talk about it. Let's hear it. Okay. So and and again, this is just a general um, general history lesson where a lot of there's there have been a lot of situations um, in history where um, black men were not allowed to talk especially to to white women now even though white men had they could do whatever they wanted to uh, the black women whether they were um, enslaved or free it was you couldn't do that as a, a a black male you couldn't talk to a white woman you couldn't even look at a white woman however there were white women who were intrigued by the black male and of course there were some relations that happened uh, you know, whatever the case may be, but then the black males were punished. A lot of the white women, I'm not going to say all, but a lot of the white women back then realized that they could manipulate a lot of situations uh, when it came to, to the black men. And just fast forwarding, because um, I want 
I don't want to get too deep because I don't have like names of history books to, to tell you uh, what to read, but it's just been a lot of, uh, from the books that I've read, white women actually did have some power with their husbands who happened to be the slave owners to, to say either you were going to not harm the, the people that were enslaved, you know, to be um, brutal. Oh, basically what I'm trying to say is they, they had a say so and how the enslaved people were going to be treated. And if they couldn't get their way, then there was some manipulation that was happening. So I know a lot of people don't wanna think that white women didn't have a voice back then. They actually did. Maybe it wasn't voting, but they did um, have a voice back then. So they, they could have um, spoken up a, a lot more than they, they um, should have. As far as educating, education, it was now so much they felt, okay, now I need to do something. This is my chance to, to kind of make this right, this wrong right. And I wanna make sure that you're safe. I wanna make sure that I'm educating you, but maybe I don't wanna educate you at the level for you to do better than my, my child or my community, but just enough. And then it turned into, oh, let's see what I'm trying to say. Then it turned into, um, not really educating at the fullest level possible. Now, this example, I'm telling you from what um, I've actually researched and actually experienced where people have said um, these actual words to me, turned into, well, I don't wanna take anything away from my whiteness or I don't wanna do my community or my white community um, a disservice by making sure I educate you because if I educate you, then that means you're gonna grow more into power and then you're gonna take over. So it's almost, um, I do wanna make sure that you're safe, but I wanna make sure that I do just enough to still make you feel inferior, if that makes sense. So coming decades and decades and generations and generations later, that is playing out into the classroom where we do have some great white female teachers. Um, they wanna make sure that our black male students or our students of, our male students of color are feeling safe, but it's just, enough to where um, they're not pushing them to the, the level of where they should be because it, you still have to have that level of inferiority um, in, the, in the classroom. And I know that's kind of deep and oh my gosh, it's <laughs> like I, I actually said this out loud, but that's one aspect of what's happening in the classroom. <laughs> well, I... That makes perfect sense. I mean, we've seen the what, like how white women weaponize the police against black men. Like we've seen that over and over again. And that is why many black men get shot by the police is because of the weaponization of white women. Like they can't, you know, we're like, we, we give them a break or something because they didn't pull the trigger, but that doesn't mean that they're, you know, completely innocent. And I think that's a really powerful thing to talk about, like how black boys are learning this in the classroom to like recognize that the people that are supposed to be supporting them aren't, aren't doing it and they get exposed to that at a very young age. Right, or it's this false sense of support really because it's been so, like I said, it's been generations and generations and it's, it's a false sense of, of learning or, or, or teaching, I would say. You know, it's not because you have to have high expectations for students and you have to challenge students. But a lot of our, our white female teachers, they're so afraid of 
being wrong or being called a racist or being perceived as prejudiced if they are pushing students um, to the level that they're supposed to. So a lot of our white female teachers tend to back up and say, as long as the student is you know, safe in the classroom uh, physically, as long as they're um, behaving appropriately, then they're gonna do whatever they can to get them to the next grade peacefully instead of challenging them because of their own fears of, oh my gosh, what are people gonna say if I actually challenge um, this, this student of color, especially this black male student? Well, and I, I can tell you again, I, I obviously I'm white, but as a student that was disabled my entire educational career, um, that I, I could feel the difference when a teacher, uh, again, was supportive, uh, you know, they, they had a job to do versus uh, I only had, I had two teachers my entire educational career who took a vested interest and recognized that um, uh, I was probably not giving it my all and they were not okay with that. And they, they, they challenged me and they, 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 they happened to be uh, math teachers. And so uh, imagine that I went into technology <laughs> and that sort of thing, but it, it was, it was two, it was two teachers who said, no, yes, that's you're, 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 you're slacking off and I get it. You're not able to see it, but that doesn't mean that the educational process is done here. So I, I can only imagine, right? Like from a, I don't know those shoes of a, of a young black or, or student of color, I don't know those shoes, but I know shoes that, um, you know, I, I, I could feel the disinterest from a teacher perspective. Exactly. And students, and right, and, and like you said, you, you, know, you recognize that as a young student, and of course our students feel um, they get that. So imagine they had that every single year throughout their K-12 experience, and then people are wondering why do we have um, this achievement gap, number one? Why do we have students dropping out of schools or not pursuing things? Why are neighbor certain neighborhoods a certain way? And it's like, because it goes back. To, and I'm not saying that everything is the education, you know, the profession's fault. It's not all of our responsibility in the education profession. However, we play a significant um, role in what is happening in our society. It is a role, and it's it's that's why I look at why I'm doing the parallel. I'm, I'm making the parallel with the police force, right? So it's a, it's there are um, there are roles that are being played that are significant roles, and uh, you, you know, for lack of another uh, a better word, like you know, people aren't blind to that, right? So, um, uh, so I I, I get I, I get that, and that's. Um, Thank you again for <laughs> so like I we could I could I could talk to you doctor for hours on this. Uh, <laughs> however, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have to wrap up. But Renita, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. We we really appreciate uh, everything you brought to us, uh, all the knowledge, information, um, wisdom um, that hopefully our listeners will walk away and actually start challenging folks in the education system to start thinking meaningfully about the role of educators themselves in the classroom. So thank you again. Oh, it was it was great um, being here. I, I realized that I was um, very passionate about this topic, especially during our first meeting, and it's just caused me to to really um, go out and, and do more. Um, do more work in this area. Well, I, uh, you should be passionate about this, uh, <laughs> doctor. And that's, uh, 
uh, we appreciate that passion and uh, you just being so transparent with with that passion because this is a safe place for that and and uh, thank you for that and I look forward to connecting with you on uh, 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 digitally and and that sort of thing doctor we we really do appreciate your your passion on this and uh, please keep us informed when you get the uh, the nod for uh, a TED TEDx stage because we we will be sharing it on our uh, social media platforms. Well, absolutely. Um, yes, if uh, if it's okay, the the free gift that I have, if it's okay for if you want people, if people want to know more about, especially being a culturally responsive, uh, culturally conscious leader, that's really what uh, a focus is because we're all leaders in a way. But in order for us to have change, we have to be culturally. Um, conscious and I just wrote up like a quick little these are five habits if people wanted to see them uh, from drvernitafreegift.com just so they can just get the download if they want it love it we will absolutely share it Nina all right well thank you Vernita thank you to all the listeners as usual uh, you can download our podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and as always we broadcast our live Black Voices Matter series on YouTube. Uh, and you can check all of the links out on chooseinclusion.com. So thanks everyone again and take care. Thanks everybody. Thank you, doctor. Hi, everyone. You're welcome. Thank you.